0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: When Russia appears in the news here in the U.S., pretty much now, it usually regards the Mueller investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election or President Trump's meeting with. President Vladimir Putin in July of 2018, but we rarely get information about ru- what Russia has become under Putin's leadership. When he became president in 2000, Putin wanted to make a trip to visit each of Russia's 11 time zones in a single night to deliver a New Year's speech. Quite the task. That trip, no, never occurred, but the authors of a new book did make that trip. They didn't do it in one night, but they picked a town in each time zone and looked at how everything from politics to natural resources shaped it. Through this research, they were able to piece together a picture of the country that measures Putin's success. The book is titled In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. Nina Khrushcheva is one of the authors of the book. She's a professor of international affairs at the New School University and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She also just happens to be the great-granddaughter of former Soviet Union Premier Nikita Khrushchev. And she wrote the book with Jeffrey Taylor. Nina, great to have you with us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. First, this idea of of Vladimir Putin wanting to do a, a, a trip in one night, basically giving speeches in all 11 time zones. That's an incredible task to try and pull off in the first place.
0: Well, and we know Vladimir Putin, we've seen him in action. He's a little bit of an exhibitionist, a lot of an exhibitionist. So he did want to present himself and the country as something special because in the uh, Boris Yeltsin years, the first Russian president after the fall of the Soviet Union in 91, Russia took a little bit of a beating from the West. I mean, it lost the Cold War and Russia did feel uh, humiliated. So when Putin came in in 2000, he said, well, it's a great country. Uh, We have 11 time zones. It's all incredibly diverse, and we really need to show it not only to the world, but more importantly at the time for the Russians to to make them feel better. So it was a of course, it was a promotional um, exercise. It was supposed to be a promotional exercise, but it was also to tell the Russians that they're, you know, they, they're not they're not a punching bag of, of the West in many ways. But of course, as, as you said, you can't really make that trip in one night because you can do it in a magic sleigh, as he wanted to do it uh, in uh, in two thousand one uh, during the New Year night. But you can't. It's just too big to to go this way. And so we thought it was an interesting idea to travel through Russia. We we couldn't, obviously, couldn't do it in one night, and we couldn't do it in winter all the way through because it's just some parts of it are way too cold to travel. Right. Uh, in a, as a regular, as regular people, but we thought it would be remarkable to see how Russia changes or doesn't when you go uh, so, sort of sequentially from time zone to time zone.
1: Well, and the size of the country plays a role here, and it, it's it, part of the reason is the fact that you do have so many time zones, uh, and that what. I guess to a degree, even though you have the overall control by Mr. Putin and, and that government, what may be happening on the eastern part of the country, I would think at times could be significantly different on what's going on uh, on the western half, closer to Europe.
0: Absolutely, and and you know one of the the closest to Europe uh, or is in Europe uh, is the city of Kaliningrad, which used to be. Um, until the end of World War II, until 1945, used to be a German city of Königsberg. And uh, so that is a German city, old German city with a German culture Mm -hmm. that suddenly became Soviet. And of course, Uh, with the Cold War raging after World War II, of course first uh, Joseph Stalin and then subsequent leaders of the Soviet Union made sure that there is very little German culture remained in that former German city. And then Putin comes in, his first wife that he now divorced from was from Kaliningrad, so he actually took, and he as we know is a German speaker, his German is very good, he was stationed in Germany as a KGB um, uh, foreign intelligence operative uh, in East Germany. So he actually took it upon, t- upon himself to bridge the German and Russian culture at the time, and they were uh, it was supposed to be a litmus test uh, of whether Russia can or cannot be Western. So there there's a lot of Germanic feeling, and their most celebrated person is uh, Immanuel Kant, a great German philosopher. Yeah. He's essentially yeah. Lenin, of, Lenin of Kaliningrad. And then you go all the way to like Vlad- Diivosstok on the Pacific Ocean, on the other side of which, as you remember, Sarah Palin memorably thought yes. she sees she sees yeah. a in the backyard yes. so we went all the way there, and there is an entirely different set of understanding of itself, because uh, South Korea, North Korea is very close, Japan is very close, and Moscow is much further. Moscow is an eight-hour flight from there, while Japan is an hour and a half. So it does create a different kind of mentality. And in fact, one would say that Vladivostok, or I would say, for example, we would say it's the most cosmopolitan city of Russia, because they do have this European, somewhat European identity that the rest of Russia has, or the Western parts of Russia have, but also very much aware of the Eastern presence. So in that in itself was uh, something that uh, sort of bigger than um, anything the world understands about Russia, that it is a diverse, the largest country in the world, and it identifies itself as such.
1: I'm guessing when you were in Vladivostok, you could not see Sarah Palin over in Alaska.
0: Well, we tried. We we took a trip (laughs) into the Pacific Ocean, and we really looked very, very hard. Right. Uh, We waved at her. We waved at her. We we hope she saw us. So
1: then when you kind of encompass all of these differences uh, with Russia right now, what do you think is the state uh, of the Russian economy at this point?
0: Well, the Russian economy is not doing as badly as the United States says it is, or... Thinks that it should after the five years of uh, Western sanctions, it Mm -hmm. even has some growth up to two percent. In in fact, which is you know could have done better, but that allows Putin to continue and to continue with his messages that you know despite everything, all the hardships that the West imposes on us, uh, we are going to you know we are going to persevere and we are going to be a great country, and that message has worked quite well, I mean, well enough, uh, until uh, the end of the summer, I think, sort of in the end of the summer, especially after the World Cup, uh, which took place in uh, in Russia across many cities, which is another wonderful thing that people actually saw, that Moscow is much bigger than just the Kremlin or just Moscow, just St. Petersburg. Uh, and after that, there was a pension reform. The World Cup was a very welcoming um, exercise for the Russians when they didn 't bomb anything when they didn't inv- invaded they didn 't invade anything yeah. and yet they were uh, they were just being and they didn 't win anything they were wonderful hosts and that made them understand that Kremlin doesn't necessarily um, uh, doesn't necessarily is not necessarily needed to make russia great, so putin's Putin's approval rating took a beating uh, and economy is slowing down also because all these big projects like a Crimea uh bridge that was built um, between Crimea and and Russia because as you know uh Crimea is not really connected by land to Russia even if it was annexed from Ukraine in 2014 so big projects are slowing down economy is slowing down and uh the state is looking very hard to see how it can uh coach the um economic slowdown and i wouldn't really pass it by putin to uh start once again uh build up the militaristic rhetoric which they've already been doing because the united states is withdrawing from a variety of of, of agreements and sanctions and not being lifted, so that part uh, probably Putin is going to be using. But for the people now, I think the fridge is a much more important um, kind of a m- more important definition of their greatness and Putin's uh, Putin's rule. So it would be very very interesting to see how that thing develops. So uh, this kind of tensions develop um, the tension between the great politics or international adventurism. And the fridge issues develop in the next year, in the next two years.
1: You mentioned Vladivostok, but is that of the towns that you visited, uh, the one, or maybe there's another one, where you have noticed the, the greatest change and maybe the greatest development uh, within the country?
0: Not really. I mean, one of the things that, once again, Putin did, I mean, and it is, we, here, talk about the Kremlin all the time, and talk about Putin all the time, and how miserable the country is, but it's actually not true. I mean, because with the um, in in 19 years that Putin has been in charge, one way or another, in fact cities became much more comfortable, most cities, and and the World Cup experience for people showed it, that they are much more comfortable than they ever were before. Um, You know, Vladivostok developed because he built three bridges in the space of 10 years, three years, I mean, five years. Uh, There were bridges and roads, for example, that we described, we traveled on that road in the far north on the city of Ahotsk, which was the gulag town, the center of gulag was created to be the center of uh, detention camps and sort of forced labor in the far north, where uh, summer is it's uh, ten, 10 months. Of, they even have a gulag song of of the kind. It's a 10-month of a year is a winter, and only two months is a summer. And it's incredibly cold, even in the summer. And uh, even there, uh, they had this um, uh, Kalimar Road where people would go and would be associated with the... Um, with prisoners walking the road, and the roads were horrible and frozen and muddy and completely undeveloped. And now it's a highway. I mean, right. the Kalimar highway, which was mind-boggling. For, and I grew up in the Soviet Union. For me, the Kalimar road is an is kind of an epitome of the horrible plight of uh, political prisoners in in the first and the Tsar era, and then the Stalin era. And suddenly, it is. Much more than that, and you actually—it's a road. So things have been built, the tangible things, and this is something that uh, essentially uh, Putin, the federal government, did. It, it, what it did is that well, we're going to create this kind of amenities that any normal country should have, uh, without claiming absolute greatness, but it did. And then the governors would take care of little things. so There would be no protests, there would be no uh, opposition, just because suddenly people got roads, they got bridges, they got business centers, cafes, restaurants,
1: and so on. But, you know, when when you think about, as you mentioned, with the World Cup uh, being there in 2018, there were obviously uh, stories and concerns of uh, of the conditions that workers were working in, and and issues in terms of the build-out of the stadium. I also think back to the the Olympics in Sochi and the the stories that have come out in in recent years about how Sochi has, to a degree, become this barren city with all of these large buildings uh, there that were obviously built. They were obviously part of of the economic development to get the Olympic Games into Russia uh, several years ago. And, And I guess the other concern is we also saw with the Olympic or I should say with the World Cup in Brazil prior, how so many of the stadiums there have gone barren. Is there a concern that that type of similar activity would be happening in Russia as well that all of these stadiums were built and and yet there may not be the the way to be able to truly use them properly moving forward? Well, I think it's the
0: interesting thing. I mean, not so interesting, but it it is a, there is a distinction between the Olympics. And uh, and the World Cup and the Olympics, of course, was was supposed to be was pre-Crimea. Was supposed to be that big, Putin story is that we you know capable of having um, having the whole Olympics hosted not just in the center but once again somewhere else. I mean right. it is, and Sochi is a summer place, so you really don't want to have a Winter Olympics there. Right? Uh, it just it was that in itself was a contradiction, and you know people were like me were saying that uh, when Putin would be forbidden from going anywhere politically because he would be such a pariah in the world he would have to have his own ski resort uh <laughs> in sochi so yes uh it was it was a show of it one of those russian things when you have in the soviet time when you have well five-year plan in two years something like that is to show to the world and then nobody came yeah. you remember no uh, foreigners foreign yep. leaders sort of snubbed it and and uh, it was a Big scandal even before it was a big scandal with with doping and and whatnot. Yep. So that was a much more of an artificial creation. And with the uh, with the with the World Cup, it was done more smartly. It was actually a lot of local um, interests were in part of the developing of it and also football stadiums soccer stadiums uh, much more used in you know not in the United States but all over the world in many ways I mean certainly in Russia they will be used because there's a lot of uh, the lot of, there's a lot of football activity soccer right. activity going on so That was, I mean, Russia learned from, or Putin learned from, I mean, he's not, he's a smart man. He learned from that experience in Sochi when it was a Patomkin village in many ways, and they actually created something that is more livable and more useful during the World Cup. The problem, of course, with the World Cup, it was unlike the Sochi Olympics, which was a Putin game, and it was a disaster in the end, right. the World Cup ended up not being Putin's game. It was people's game, and it ended up, ended up to be so successful.
1: How, how does how does the economy in that country continue to grow, be, even with the vast size of it? And, and as you mentioned before, there are so many different elements at play with the, the West and the East and, and the central part of the country. How does the economy continue to try and grow as a whole? And, and obviously oil is a, is a big piece to this, but but agriculture is a big piece as well.
0: Oil is a very big piece to it. I mean, and Russia, Russia's economy, given its size and its potential, it's tiny. I mean, it's I think it's the 12th and the 13th of the world after Italy. So let's just I'm not be right. so excited about I mean, it is growing. I mean, there is growth, but it's nowhere near where it should have been if it were um, um, administered well, and with this grandiosity of a great country, and and sort of the pomposity of, um, you know, let's look at us—we are the biggest and and, and the greatest. Uh, so uh, yes, it does, and it grows big once again because of the land. Of course, there is oil and and gas. That is, Russia has been um, quite uh, has been quite prominent uh, in in its even diversifying the uh, those who receive russian oil and gas i mean you know for example china is now a recipient and and uh, uh, there is a um, uh, nord stream 2 is being is being built and whatnot so even with sanctions uh, there is there's still a developing There is still a developing um, category. But also, uh, Russia is incredibly rich in natural resources. I mean, the diamonds, the amber, I mentioned Kaliningrad. There is amber, I think, is the first producer of amber uh, in the world. Then there is diamonds and gold and whatnot in Yakutia, in the coldest place in the world. That's that Kalimar Road where uh, people were digging for gold and have been digging for gold until today. So, all these things are. Uh, copper aluminum it's all all these things are there, but and w- with agriculture, in fact, one of those unintended consequences of the sanctions is that uh, you know the things that Russia were buying in agriculture from turkey from uh from Europe, from China, they're doing it themselves now because uh when the sanctions came in, uh Putin said, Well, we are going to pay you back, you horrible western world not so western world is that we're going to pay you back we're not going to buy your agricultural products we're going to do it ourselves and so they started doing it themselves and suddenly you have cheese that you've never had in Russia before. It's amazing. You have yogurt that you've never had before. You have meat that China is now buying because uh, this is something that Russia can do. I mean, it is a talented country. That's why it, the why I'm saying it's such a shame that it's only 13th um, or whatever 14th uh, GDP and and developed uh, economy of the world because it, yeah. it could have been much. Faster, but that idea of grandiosity and size really gets in the way of um, of uh, a lot of. Normalcy as Russians would say, even though under Putin they're much more normal than it ever was before.
1: Nina Khrushcheva, who is uh, the author of the book *In Putin's Footsteps*, joining us here on the show. Your comments are welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at Biz Radio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at danloney twenty one. One of the chapters in the book, and you alluded to it, uh, this town a little bit earlier, uh, is you talk about Kiev, and, and I've Obviously, Kiev is a, is a town that has been uh, fairly controversial, especially in the in the last few years as well. You call it the mother of all Russian cities, or at least you say that the potential of it is to be the mother of all Russian cities, or a threat to Mother Russia. Take us into into that chapter and what you mean from both sides of that
0: well Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities because the original uh, Ukraine and original Russia were the Kiev and Russia that the Russia that uh, was the center of Kiev the seat of of uh, that power was in Kiev uh, and so it was the the mother of all Russian cities was the beginning of of Russian Ukrainian culture in 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 many ways uh, so and the reason we put it in, because of course, Kiev is in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, clearly, it's not a Russian city. Yep. Yeah. But because it is such an important city for um, understanding of, you know, Putin's agenda, the annexation of Crimea, I mentioned annexation of Crimea in twenty fourteen, uh, because it was a Russian and then it became Ukrainian when Ukraine was part of the uh, the Soviet Union. So one of the republics in the Soviet Union, and then. Uh, was Ukraine proper, Uh, Crimea was Ukraine's proper, and then Putin said, well, it was all Russian before, so we should take it back uh, in 2014, right after, in fact, people didn't come to Sochi. The foreign leaders didn't come to Sochi, so it was his 34th medal, I think. He sort of (laughs) thought that he would pay back the world um, and show what he can do more. Uh, So Kiev is an incredibly important place of where... The seat of power began where Russian Christianity began uh, in um, uh, in the 900s. Uh, it is uh, important city and one of the stories that we tell. There was a very important, uh, uh, very important statue in Kiev, which is Saint Vladimir of of Kiev with with a Grand Cross baptizing the Russian lands on Russian lands and it was built in uh, I think 1843 by a Russian emperor. Nicholas the and while the soviets destroyed when they came in they destroyed all re- references to the old regime and so old tsar's all the all the uh, the statues to the most statues to the tsars were destroyed that one was kept in because it was such a Great um, kind of imperial symbol of uniting all the Russians of, of showing what the great Russia is. And even more ironic, it was renovated in 1953 by Joseph Stalin, who of course was who died in '53, so he didn't really live to see the renovated uh, that renovated Vladimir. And when. Uh, um, Russia and ex-Crimea and they became issues with uh, Ukraine, East East Ukraine that Russians are now claiming or the rebel, Russian rebel claiming Russia supports the independence from Ukraine because, as they say, they're not technically Ukrainians. Putin decided he needs his own Vladimir because he can't take Vladimir from Kiev. So they build very close to the Kremlin. They build their own grand Vladimir also with a grand cross. And so it is even those uh, baptismal histories become a matter of of confrontation between russia and uh, between russia and ukraine and what was really interesting in ukraine i mean they now destroyed all their lenins they had a lot of lenins before and they destroyed the the references and the monuments to, Le- to lenin and there's still remaining few Soviet monuments, right. so they put them into Crimean, uh, not sorry, Crimean uh, Ukrainian um, uh, Ukrainian ethnic uh, ethnic shirts, sort of the, with embroidery and whatnot, sort of to say we don't care about the Soviet Union. So sure. the the drama of of the um, of this who was the first Christian, who was the first Russian, is raging on. Uh, between um, Russia and Ukraine, not only in Crimea, or East, uh, East Ukraine, but also in those cultural references and uh, symbolic statues of
1: previous emperors. Nina, it's a fantastic look at, uh, at your country, and uh, thank you for giving us your time today and talking about it. All the best with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Nina Khrushcheva, who is uh, the author of the book In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. Uh, The book is available in bookstores and online now for your purchase. For more insight from Knowledge
0: at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.